0: China's influence is rising, but how is it changing the countries around it? From Radio Free Europe, I'm Reid Standish, and this is Talking China and Eurasia, a podcast about how Beijing is changing the balance of power. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has left Moscow after a symbolic three-day visit with Vladimir Putin, where they set their sights on shaping a new world order. But what did the visit actually achieve? On today's episode, we'll be breaking down Xi and Putin's meeting and explaining what happened, what kind of deals were struck, and perhaps more importantly, what kind of deals weren't. Helping me figure out what went down in Moscow and what it means for the world is Raffaello Pantucci, a senior fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. Raffaello, pleasure to have you here today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, Reid. Thank you again for the invitation to join you to talk about this fascinating meeting.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on and thank you for accommodating us. I know it's a bit late uh, in Singapore right now. Um, so um, <laughs> with that said, maybe let's, uh, let's jump into things and, and let's get started. Um, so, you know, obviously today is March 22nd. Uh, she left Moscow early this morning. Raffaello, help listeners catch up and explain what's at stake uh, in this high profile meeting and and also just what exactly went down.
1: So this was a meeting, uh, a two day meeting between President Xi Jinping of China and President Vladimir Putin of Russia, Um, and it was a meeting. Uh, which was very much intended to signal uh, the strength and uh, proximity of the relationship between China and Russia. Um, It's a meeting that had been sort of widely teed up in uh, the public media um, and was, you know, teed up in various different ways. Uh, But in essence, it was an opportunity for Um, You know, it was something that the Russians were talking about since late last year. They said, you know, President Putin is going to come and visit. We didn't know the exact date. The Chinese initially got reticent about setting that date. They finally did, and he's now come. And he's really emphasized uh, the importance of the relationship with Moscow to Beijing. So, you know, this is essentially a two-day demonstration of how important Moscow and Beijing are to each other.
0: Well, um, you know, a lot of the attention ahead of this visit was obviously... You know, the war in Ukraine, this was the shadow that, you know, follows the Russia-China relationship everywhere the last year. Um, And there was a lot of attention of, you know, whether she was interested in brokering a peace deal or even if Beijing was ready to cross, you know, a policy line, a red line and start supplying Moscow with lethal aid. Um, You know, given we've just wrapped up this visit, I mean, do you see anything from the last few days that stood out to you about the war? And how do you think this meeting might affect things, especially as the fighting continues in Ukraine?
1: I think it's a really interesting question in the sense that I don't think we have the answer to it yet. I think what we saw from this meeting was a clear further demonstration of the fact that China has clearly agreed to kind of align itself and support Moscow's position within this conflict. At the same time, it's worth pointing out that, you know, the thing that they were talking about in the sort of Ukraine context here was a peace proposal that the um, Chinese had put forwards. Uh, a few weeks ago, maybe even a month ago, sorry, I've lost the dates now slightly, um, which was basically their offer of a kind of peace plan for Ukraine. Now, while this peace plan was kind of rubbish in the West, um, you know, the fact that the first paragraph of it started off talking about the fact that they were looking to, you know, protect national sovereignty, um, and the fact that even in the statements we saw coming out of this uh, comment, they were talking about, you know, protecting territorial integrity of states when there's been a quite flagrant uh, abuse of that. On, on the Russian side and um, does demonstrate which side uh, the Chinese are kind of aligning themselves with within this conflict. But at the same time, what's interesting is that, you know, the the truth is, from a Chinese perspective, they were offering a kind of a plan for peace. Um, and they are presenting themselves very much as the only member of the kind of P5 within the UN Security Council, the permanent members, who is actually offering ideas for peace within Ukraine and not supplying weapons as far as we know so far. So, you know from a chinese perspective uh, this is this idea of offering themselves as a peacemaker for ukraine is very much part of a bigger picture that we see beijing pushing forwards but it's a bigger picture that you know, is being cushioned against a continuing of support for essentially the Russian perspective. But what's interesting is the Ukrainians haven't actually dismissed it, while the West has very much dismissed these Chinese efforts and said, yeah, we don't really believe this is going to happen. And I don't think anything happened over the past few days that demonstrated a kind of shift in, in any sort of direction. At the same time, we have seen that Kiev has continued to keep the door open and say, yes, we would love to hear from President Xi with any ideas he might have to try to bring this conflict to a close. So... I think it does highlight the fact that, you know, while I think in Western capitals, there's been a kind of rejection of these Chinese efforts and this Chinese change. What's interesting is the rest of the world isn't dismissing it in the same way. And I think that's a really important element to come out of this discussion and the wider push that we've seen from Beijing in the past few months, or right? Maybe since right. the end of COVID from their perspective, um, which is changing kind of what, the way China's presenting itself to the world.
0: Well, you know, the, I think that that's, obviously super important and you know getting this chinese perspective because obviously i mean you know okay you're you're coming from singapore um but i mean i think obviously for for a lot of listeners who are say you know coming from a western country um you know things look a little bit different depending on which which side of the world you're on and where you're coming from and so that's kind of what what else i want to ask you about here is so we saw you know out of the summit or i don't know if we can really call it a summit at this point out of the meeting she and Putin, they signed this joint statement uh, Tuesday evening after holding this big centerpiece talks. They were closed doors for several hours. Um, afterwards, um, you know, the Kremlin that really trumpeted China's role. It said it was playing a positive role and that it was objective and had an unbiased position on about Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. Um, and then we saw the two leaders also unveil this package of agreements, you know, detailing Kind of a roadmap for future economic ties and investment, closer cooperation between each other, state media. Um, and then also just a lot of statements criticizing the West, really taking aim at the United States and especially NATO and any ambitions it might have in Asia, and then also the AUKUS defense pact, which is between Australia, the UK, and the US. But I thought one thing that was kind of interesting is, you know, th- this was a l- pretty heavy on symbolism, fairly light on substance, actually, at the end of the day. You know, these talks, they really stopped short of delivering the kind of decisive deals, especially on key economic issues, that I think a lot of people were that saying that Moscow would need to help it weather, you know, growing economic pressure from Western sanctions. Um, and, you know, I think maybe that might highlight some of the limits of Chinese support, um, and then also get into this idea of this this power balance that seems to be unfolding. So, Raviello, I mean, what do you think was, was Xi's goal... Uh, with the summit what and did he achieve those goals?
1: I mean I think the goal from president Xi's side and I think it's important to point this out is it was clearly to demonstrate the Russia is an important ally for them, <laughs> you know. I mean, I think that you know a lot of the points you made about you know how how this didn't come away maybe with the sort of concrete agreements that people were expecting, the dramatic shifts maybe in the relationship, um, and really in many ways that this is a demonstration of how increasingly important China is to Russia from an economic perspective, and how this is going to be really critical kind of going forwards may all be true. Um, But at the same time, I think the underlying narrative that one hears within that kind of discourse is this idea, well, therefore, this relationship is one that both of them don't see as that important. I think the clear messaging from this engagement was both of them see themselves as really important partners on the world stage at the moment. And they're very happy to sort of go around and trumpet about it in this sort of way. I mean, President Xi, you know, has started traveling again since the end of COVID, but you know, there aren't many places he's gone to where he spent kind of this much time on one individual relationship. Um, so I think this is really important from the Chinese perspective, you know, demonstrating that Moscow is an important partner. It is a UNSC, you know, United Nations Security Council member. It is still a big economy. It is still a big country. Um, Notwithstanding all the pressure against it, it has sort of withstood and continued in many ways. So, you know, I, I think that's important to point out because I think from a Chinese perspective, clearly having Russia on your side, so to speak, in the kind of geopolitical conflict that we see is clearly something that they see as very important. I also think the other two elements I say were important from a Chinese perspective was one was highlighting um, the, um, uh, the kind of alternative international order that china is trying to advance which is kind of the anti-western order or maybe anti-western is a strong way of, too strong a way of putting it it's really the non-western order or the alternative western to the western order which is you know the constellation of organizations that both russia and china are often part of like the shanghai cooperation organization uh, like the BRICS grouping um, like the um, you know asian in- international AIIB, um, you know, some of these other sort of global institutions, which are clearly built from others, which are kind of a competition in some ways to institutions like NATO, um, to institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, you know, the traditional kind of Western actors leading how the world is kind of built. And I think that was something that we saw clearly in the sort of final summit joint communique, where we saw them clearly signaling a bunch of these things as really important to them um and then i think the the other point which is i think really important from a chinese perspective is this idea of china as a peacemaker you know we have to put this in the context of the wider chinese engagement that we've seen since um, they declared the end of zero COVID at home, and she's traveled abroad, which was to a lot of these institutions that are not necessarily Western led, like the G20, like APEC, uh, like the SCO, um, like the GCC, where we've seen China kind of engaging. And also, you know, off the back of China's involvement in the kind of, you know, lightening of the relations that we've seen between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, and here, China's also offering itself as something of a peacemaker in the Ukraine context. So the narrative that basically Beijing is pushing is this idea of there's an alternative world all out there we're a key part of that and moscow is a partner in kind of building that and this is i think an important narrative that beijing is trying to achieve and i think a summit very much sort of affirm that in their minds and to parts
0: of the world um i i mean it it, it's it's quite clear that this is you know a narrative i mean i think you know she the statesman is seems to be the message that beijing is looking to to convey to the world um but I guess um, a couple of follow-ups there then. I mean, one is, if I look at this, I mean, you said that this is a narrative of, of, you know, China as a peacemaker. But I mean, I guess, especially if we're looking at Ukraine, I mean, it seems some of these things are a bit of a non-starter. The Ukrainians, you know, they've been, I think, quite polite and, you know, they're they're quite quick to not criticize the Chinese. But, you know, they do say that, OK, well, you know. This plan doesn't ask for, you know, Russia to leave Ukrainian territory. So it's kind of a bit of a non-starter. And then also then to the fact that uh, as much as I think that, you know, during this meeting, Putin looked, um, you know, he was quite receptive and said all the nice, polite things all standing next to Xi, but basically saying, you know, this war is going to continue. Um, So, I mean, even with this, the optics and everything, but I mean, behind the optics, I mean, is there really a lot in substantial terms that the Chinese can really do?
1: i mean look on ukraine i struggle to see what that is having said that um i have been surprised by the way that beijing has been willing to kind of push the idea that president xi is trying to become involved in this personally in some sort of way um which you know there's reportedly a potential call between him and president zelensky coming um if that happens um and it's sort of unclear whether it is but i think The way that it seems to have been telegraphed by Beijing, it would surprise me if it didn't happen, at least in some way, shape or form, leads me to suspect that there might be something that they think they can pull out of this. Now, what exactly that is, I don't know. And whether it will be the game changer that will sort of end the conflict, I struggle to see that happening. But if it lightens the conflict in any way, shape or form, um, I think that, you know, while... Maybe Kiev, maybe the West will look at this and say, well, this is nothing. You know, this is not ending the conflict. What we need to do is see Russia pull back and stop invading a sovereign neighbor. Um, To the rest of the world, they might say, well, you know, actually, you know, the Chinese did offer something and they did achieve whatever that limited goal actually was. And so maybe they didn't end the conflict and it's a very difficult conflict to end. But actually you know, they offered something and it was a different something and something that actually points for trying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. And I think the thing is, while that won't get any resonance in, in a kind of Western capital, I wonder in other parts of the world where people are more hesitant and people actually, you know, see the war in Ukraine as not this sort of earth shattering thing, but they see it as a war between countries, which unfortunately happened at some moments in time. Um, You know, all of this not to say I uh, I necessarily concur with that perspective. But, you know, I think the point is that I I think it's worth thinking about how these things are seen in other contexts. And I think in other contexts of the world, where maybe conflict is not as rare as it is in a kind of, um, in a European sense, in this sort of way, people might look at it and say, well, you know, at least the Chinese are offering something. And if we look at the kind of hard reality of, you know, the UNSC as a grouping, the five members of the permanent council, you know, the only one that isn't overtly offering weapons or pouring arms into the battlefield in Ukraine is frankly China. So, you know, to a global community, that reads differently, I think, to how it necessarily right. reads in, right. in, in, in the transatlantic lines or even in Moscow.
0: Well, Ravel, I mean, I want to get a pivot back a bit to, to things between Xi Putin, Beijing and Moscow. Um, you know, I read an interesting analysis uh, this morning from Yu Jie from uh, Chatham House. And, you know, her kind of take was basically explaining China's line and she was saying, you know, Beijing's goal here is basically to just maintain the status quo in its relationship. And that kind of, I thought, was an interesting point. And then I think especially looking at the summit and, you know, in advance, you know, there was some theorizing, some speculation that, all right, maybe there's going to be some kind of big, you know, hallmark deal or something like this at this summit. You know, something similar to maybe what we saw uh, back in 2014 uh, when Putin, uh, met with Xi and, you know, they signed this big gas pipeline, which then became Power of Siberia. And currently there's discussions for Power of Siberia, too, which is a, a new gas pipeline and something that the Russians are really starting to push. But the Chinese seem to be a bit hesitant on. And I thought it was interesting during the summit because, you know, Putin seemed to talk about the pipeline during public comments uh, yesterday on on March 21st you know, saying that practically all the parameters of that agreement have been finalized. And again, during uh, joint remarks with Xi, he added that Mongolia has signed off on power Siberia, too, and also that Russia had promised to supply China with at least 98 billion cubic meters of natural gas. Of course, that figure would only be achievable if the new pipeline moves ahead, which is something that Xi was quite notably silent about. And then again, if we look at this joint statement that came out afterwards, um, you know, it only noted that both. China and Russia would make, quote, efforts to advance work on studying and agreeing for plans to build the pipeline. So it's by no means a done deal. So I guess I'm trying to ask, you know, not only what is your take on this, but what does that really tell us about how China is as a partner with Russia? What is their relationship like? Where as much as they're saying we're shaping this new world order, But still, you know, we're going to, you know, grind you down to down to the bone when it comes to negotiations. And, you know, we're not going to give no, there's no kind of free handouts here.
1: No, I think, you know, I think for me, in many ways, I I would go back to that um, wonderfully repeated quote by the former British Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, who Lord Palmerston, sorry, who said, you know, countries have interests, not friends, (laughs) you know, and I think that's the key point here that's worth thinking about, you know, in that no kind of strategic alliance, no alliance between powers is really entirely comprehensive and meaning that they bend over against each other on everything, there are clearly fissures and there are clearly tensions. And for me, what's so fascinating about the China-Russia relationship at the moment is the extraordinary complexity of the economic side of that relationship, where on the one hand we can see that Russia is banking quite heavily on China in terms of the kind of the volume of you know REM and B that they 're putting into their forex exchanges, um, the kind of degree to which they 're pivoting a lot of their infrastructure in a sort of eastern direction, trying to look towards eastern markets and clearly China 's the biggest one that sits right next to them, which they 're targeting be that for gas or be that for anything else um, and how much Chinese companies are on the one hand clearly seeing an opportunities, all the Western ones evacuate and they kind of surge in. But then on the other hand, you see other companies are kind of pulling back. So, you know, there's reports about Huawei moving a lot of its people from uh, Russia into Central Asian countries. Um, there's the reports around Alibaba deciding to scale back on its big AliExpress Russia, Ali Russia project um, to suspend actually its investments in it as a result of the invasion, fearful of kind of secondary sanctions. So you know, there is a kind of complexity and duality within this economic relationship, which is continuing, which, which, which sort of continues on. And so, you know, in many ways, it's it's just kind of the way it seems to be structured. Now, clearly, I think if we're talking about the sort of power Siberia discussion in particular, um, I think what's clear is that China has increasing an upper hand in these discussions because, Russia needs to sell its product now and it doesn't have its previous big partner you know big commercial entity Europe to sort of play off against anymore so it does need to move this stuff because it needs the income um, and from a Chinese perspective they can clearly kind of take a step back now can basically play a hard uh, game in terms of negotiating but I think what's critical to me about within all of this is that notwithstanding this reality which as I say you can see on kind of multiple levels within the economic sphere in particular um, the leaders still got together and made a very grand demonstration of how close their partnership is, which says to me that notwithstanding these kinds of economic tensions, which are very easy to find, or other tensions in other areas that are easy to find, the overall push that the leaders are signaling is that this is a really important relationship to both of us and one that we are very heavily invested in and are not going to walk away from. And so in a way, all these other issues become details within that discussion. Um, you know, as to the point about whether the Chinese see this you know, the aim here is to kind of stabilize things and keep things straight on. Um, I think that's true up to a point. Um, I think those takeaway comments we heard of President Xi uh, and President Putin sort of warmly saying goodbye to each other and how they were kind of shaping a new world order together – I think it's important to note uh, against the context of, as I was saying before, you know, this kind of new world order that I think they think they're kind of developing and pushing forwards. Because that really is the kind of vision that's coming out of Beijing at the moment. If we look at their kind of global security initiative, the global development initiative, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. there's another one that was added recently. You know, they're, they're clearly trying to create a construct here of the world and the rules-based international system as they see it should be. And that is... Something new and something different, and actually much more ambitious than just kind of stabilizing it. Because I think they really see Russia as an important partner within that context. And I think that's the kind of change element which we can see running through all of this, which may be more gradual than a kind of sudden shift right. or change, but is definitely a kind of direction that they're moving.
0: Well, I, I I want to dig into that. Um, but before I do, I'm just going to you know say something to everybody who's listening to us live. If you have a question that you want to ask Raphael or myself, you can raise your hand and we will come to it. So if you have something, please raise your hand up or feel free to send a message to the main Radio for Europe account that's hosting this. And we can answer your question live on air that way. So, Raphael, returning again to this issue, you know, you're talking about the New World Order, um, you know, realignment, whatever we want to call it. Um, you know, you mentioned this comment uh, that uh, between she and Putin, you know, when they were leaving their state dinner last night. Um, and I know that was one that really struck out to me, too. And um, I think obviously, it's, you know, not for, you know, just happenstance that a camera was there to film it, of course. But it's, you know, the quote is, right now, there are changes, the likes of which we haven't seen for 100 years. And we are the ones driving these changes. So I mean, that really stands out to me. I mean, you talk a lot about, okay, this is hyper ambitious, this is Beijing really trying to rewrite the rules of the road, you know, in its own favor. Um, And clearly, it has tools and the ammunition to do so. But I mean, what, what does this kind of new world order look like? And especially one that has Russia and China together? I mean, especially, you know, we're talking about all these complexities. I mean, I guess it's how wedded together are they and, and how committed and capable are they to actually, you know, rewrite things in this way that they seem to be signaling?
1: I think signalling is one thing. I think achieving is another, right? <laughs> I think definitely. The truth is, you know, they're they're not the only actors with some agency within this discussion. There's a whole world out there of countries that have different views to them, and I think for them to, you know, believe that they can do this overnight, I think is is, is ludicrous, um, and I don't think achievable, frankly. I think you know, but but I think the interesting thing is, is it's an alternative world offer, and it's not an alternative world offer coming from you know two small random countries in whichever continent you want to point to. um, It's coming from, you know, two of the members of the UN Security Council, which is theoretically the kind of highest, you know, structure in kind of global geopolitics. Um, And one of them being the world's second largest economy. So it is not an, it has got some underpinnings and some foundations that are quite interesting and quite solid. And I think how that resonates in other parts of the world is, um, is interesting and competitive you know i mean we just need to look and see how we can see the kind of china um russia clash with the west echoing and resonating in other parts of the world to see that you know it is in, it is offering it is an interesting offering to other people um and i think that is 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 highlights the kind of competition in some way that kind of is increasingly becoming one of the defining elements of the world order that we're living in i mean right yeah
0: well I, I was gonna ask I mean you, you know you you talk about other uh you know parts of the world, things like that, um where perhaps you know this this you know world order offered by the Russians and the Chinese might seem very appealing, but I'm curious you know like where where are some spots what are some hot spots in your mind that people should be looking to next to see you know how the this talk that we just saw to Moscow gets put into practice.
1: Um, I think it's, it's, it's really, so the interesting one for me in some ways is where do we actually see them coordinating? Because I think what we don't really see is them doing a lot of that, to be honest. Um, I think maybe the areas I would look to most immediately is ones that might be interesting to think a little bit more about. One is Central Asia and the other Southeast Asia, because in both regions, they both got interesting stakes that seem potentially to be competitive but actually seem quite happy to work in parallel but don't actually seem to be building towards something together but what they do seem to be doing and i'm talking here specifically about central asia is increasingly limiting the options of the individual kind of the third countries that we're talking about so within the central asian context um you know what's i think worrying to them is what I hope what I imagine was worrying to some people in in the Central Asian capitals is the fact that we saw a line in this joint statement that you know actually has a paragraph that said you know we will increasingly look to coordinate our activity within Central Asia now, what does that actually mean? You know the Central Asians have kind of built a concept of foreign policy which is very much about being mul- you know multi vectorism you know, balancing everyone against each other, sitting in the middle and kind of steering competition between these people to their kind of advantage. Um, now, if the two principal actors that you're talking about have made a clear strategic decision to, A, be aligned together, and B, coordinate their activities in your part of the world, then suddenly it becomes very difficult for you to actually try to bounce one off against each other. Um, and so it starts to limit options. And so in some ways, that's, the, the, that's what I can see happening maybe in some context, which could be worrying. And maybe this will happen in Southeast Asia as well. I think Russia has maybe a lesser foothold in Southeast Asia um, than it does in Central Asia to be able to really offer that alternative. But, you know, you could look at a power like India, where Ch- Russia has a very positive relationship, China is a very negative one. Um, but you could see some interesting dynamics playing out there, uh, which would fit into this kind of bigger international order that they're offering i mean in terms of what this actual international order is about i think the key from their perspective is it'll be a far less judgmental international order than they think the west is offering and one where basically it's more about governments and countries having governments that are governing them and those governments doing whatever they perceive to be the sort of correct order of business uh, within that country and you know others not interfering and um, which means this whole you know approach that we've seen from the west are basically looking at countries and saying well you know we think the governance in your country is not great and we think it might be making problems and issues worse, that narrative will kind of go away, you know, and you'll just right. let people be. And that, to me, feels like quite a worrying world order because what unfortunately happened, you know, not every country is has the best governance around and that leads Definitely, to people yeah. suffering.
0: Um, okay, well, Raphael, I think we're going to go to our first live question now. Um, great. Let me see if he's getting promoted up into the queue. Um, let's see doesn't look like it yet (laughs) um okay well maybe i oh here we go okay uh shaggy <laughs> is that your name um shaggy um thanks for for joining um please uh you know introduce yourself and um tell us what's on your mind yeah i'll just go by the name shaggy fella because it makes me laugh so my question would be what does china mean by uh, ukraine's
1: territorial integrity does it mean the 1991 boulders does it mean um that russia can keep the four oblasts whether it's uh, annexed or something else
0: and that's my question Thanks. I think that's a that's a really good, interesting question. Actually, um, you know, Raft, you do you want to start that one off, and then uh, perhaps I can follow up on it.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. My my sense has been that this is kind of a, a terminology that China um, uses a lot. You know, they talk about sovereignty, they talk about territorial integrity. I think it's an echo in some ways of uh, the UN's uh, charter of you know how countries should behave with each other. Um I think what they actually mean in tangible terms i I don't know that I've seen them very specifically define that to be honest. I think they'd be kind of they these are words that they will use uh when in reality they'll kind of let the realities on the ground define that as the realities on the ground define it
0: yeah um i to follow up on that I mean I think it this is kind of a bit of perhaps you know the the Achilles heel, perhaps biggest one when China starts to talk about you know, achieving a peace deal in Ukraine, you know, when it talks about, you know, territorial integrity and sovereignty and those things, obviously this is language that China upholds everywhere. It has to do with, you know, China sees Taiwan as part of its territory, and that's why, you know, it uses this same language to defend uh, when it sees, you know, country, Western countries, especially engaging Taiwan in what it sees as an underhanded way. And so it uses a lot of this question, but obviously then at the same fact that it's, it clearly seems to have, uh, some kind of inclination to accept new territorial gains from Russia, um, you know that's a, this inherent contradiction. So you know we saw that uh, Beijing still hasn't fully recognized you know the annexation of Crimea. Um, it's something to abstain from uh, in voting at the UN. But clearly, I think in practice, you know it does recognize these things. Um, and again, when it came to you know Russia's you know trying to annex other parts of, of Ukraine that we saw in the last year. I mean, again, China's kind of stayed back from all of this. But, you know, I think that in terms of respecting Ukraine's borders, I mean, in practice, the Chinese are probably taking a pretty open ended approach, even if it does sort of contradict a lot of what would be their traditional line, I think. Um, Rap, do you want to add in there?
1: Well, I do. I, you know, I think I agree 100% with what you've, uh, with everything you just said. I guess the one thing I'd, I'd maybe put this in a wider, you know, historical context, right? Which is if you go back and look at, uh, the, you know, Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008 and the annexation of, you know, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Um, and you look at the Chinese reaction to that, which was one, of you know, kind of open a pool, <laughs> you know, and kind of horror that, you know, the world was being... Uh, you know that 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 a reality was descending where countries could just kind of rewrite other people's borders like this and recognize, you know, breakaway regions. Um, you know, at that moment, I remember President Medvedev went to a Shanghai Cooperation Organization summit uh, to try to rally the SCO to kind of support the Russian cause at the time, uh, which was, you know, generally getting appalling rejection around the world. Um, and the, you know, the, the the Chinese were frankly leading the SCO pushback on it, and President Hu Jintao. The MFA at the time, I think, made some quite sharp comments about, you know, what was happening and what the Russians were doing not being clearly happy about it. Um, to then track forward to 2014, when we saw the Russians first, you know, do their meddling, take over Crimea and invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, of Donbass, um, you know, we saw... You know, a more silent Chinese reaction. Um, and, you know, we saw instead a kind of a pitch which was much more supportive of the kind of Russian perspective without being openly supportive of Moscow. It was much more sort of quiet support in a way. And to what we see now, which is really a more full-throated kind of support of Russia's position and what Russia is doing on the international stage, while at the same time continuing to talk the language of you know, international order and UN, uh, UN rights and sovereignty and territorial integrity. Um, there is an interesting transition and path there that I think speaks a little bit to a shift that we are seeing in Beijing. But for me, it's not really a shift, I think, in Beijing's perspective. I think the fundamental issues which you pointed to about you know, worrying about you know about how this might echo with them on taiwan or something um is kind of has remained as a constant but i think what's interesting is the way that the relationship with russia has shifted um and i think that's why i think now we look at it and look at this language and it seems much more kind of bizarre and extreme because they're coming out and saying these things while at the same time their actions are very clearly supportive of one side than the other
0: yeah well i mean i i think you know in talking about how much that relationship has changed i think that transitions pretty well into uh this next question that we have uh this is a written one uh on twitter that was sent in so this is getting into um you know what i guess it, it's i'm sorry i'm just trying to read this here um i guess what they're asking is you know what might d- does she have kind of some kind of i don't know ter- territorial ambitions on uh Russia or something like that in the long term. I mean, obviously, parts of the Russian Far East, um, you know, used to be under Chinese control when we go back in history. Um, You know, this is something when I lived in Russia, I used to hear a lot about, you know, Chinese designs on, you know, parts of Siberia, or, you know, trying to take water from Lake Baikal, or these types of things. And I mean, for a while, it seemed that this was you know a quite genuine concern that existed even in russian leadership uh up to a certain level and a lot of suspicion there of the chinese but that seems to have largely faded i mean raf do you have what's your take on why that might be
1: um i mean i think the the kind of concerns you're talking about are ones that you know very very loud often you hear from moscow i think i was back in what 2000 or so when uh, President Putin went out to the Far East and sort of made these comments that, you know, if we don't, if we're not careful, we're going to lose this part of Russia to our kind of Eastern partners uh, or Eastern neighbors um so there's a very deep paranoia but if you look at today you can see actually the links between kind of the russian far east and china have increased they've opened more border posts and connections um you can see that the governors of those east of those regions are sort of encouraging and would like more chinese investment and that goes back to before uh, the 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 russian invasion of ukraine and kind of the pushing of the relationship together that we've seen so far so i think That concern seems to have been assuaged, at least within a Russian perspective at an official level. Whether that's true at a public level, I I don't know. Um, But I find, you know, having traveled a lot around Central Asia in particular, um, and even some parts of the kind of Russian East or at least the Chinese kind of parts next to it, um, that there is clearly a lot of paranoia um towards China's expansion of missions. I personally am not a huge believer of China's expansionist power in that way. I think for the Chinese Communist Party, their perspective is to have the China that they were, that they control and they've inherited with the borders that it has and the borders that they recognize, um, which I think with the Russians is, is fairly clear and defined um being where they kind of see their empire as being. And then beyond that, it's other powers with which they have varying sorts of relationships. And I think that's more how they see it. But you know, I'm not sure I see a kind of expansionist China that sees itself as taking over parts of the Russian East or parts of Central Asia. Right. Parts of Southeast Asia particularly. But you know, I I do know that there's very, very strong conspiracy theories. That run around those parts of the world thinking definitely this. yeah and, and I mean there was that big there was that, there was that series of articles that emerged in the middle of the pandemic in 2020 uh, in the kind of Chinese nationalist uh, right know, this media. is about
0: Tajikistan right yeah.
1: yeah well it was actually about all of them you know the articles it's fascinating because it, the ones that got attention was Kazakhstan um, and Kyrgyzstan latterly but there were also articles about Tajikistan and essentially every single Chinese neighbor <laughs> there was an article about them saying how this part of it really was once upon a time parts of China and it will be once again now I don't know that I've ever seen any official Chinese statement in that direction, to be honest. So I take it with a pinch of salt. But, you know, it's it's certainly a conspiracy theory and paranoia that we see running around on both sides of the border.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I guess that there's sort of some, you know, fuel that gets added to it. I believe with that story, you know, eventually those articles, I think, were were censored and, and kind of removed off the Chinese web um, and kind of came for some fringe nationalist things. But that's also, I mean, a big part of you know China at home, I think you know, as attitudes become more nationalistic and it does lead to some of those, you know, calls of, you know, taking back old territory and things like that. But yeah, you know, I also agree with you. I mean, that's not never been my interpretation of Chinese foreign policy that it's looking for you know, with the exception of how it views Taiwan, you know, looking for kind of land grabs in any kind of way.
1: Right. And I think I think the difference in some ways about Taiwan is, from their perspective, Taiwan is part of them. <laughs> you
0: right, know, exactly. Yes, parts, yes. You know,
1: it's in, even in the international order it's constructed now, they don't think this is a different country. They think it's just a province of their country, which is sort of a renegade authority. Uh, whereas, you know, I think right. they recognize that these parts of, you know, the Russian border is what it is, you know. The Indian border is the interesting one, I suppose, because that's so Uh, so so flexible is maybe the wrong word but so you know right yes let's put it that way you know maybe there Um, you could see a land grab happening in some sort of way but
0: um okay raf we have one more question here um from the audience before um we start to wrap up but i i guess i mean maybe you got into this a little bit already um but the question is basically you know what is china i guess offering you know when you talk about you know at this summit, we saw Putin, we saw Xi, they're offering, you know, it's a pitch. Um, you know, if we think of foreign policy as a marketing exercise, you know, this is the fact, you know, big billboard, you know, central branding for the new world Russian or Chinese-led world order with, you know, Russia number two, I guess, is maybe a more accurate way of characterizing it. But I mean, what, what do you think that that offers? Why is that appealing to, to some parts of the world?
1: Well, I think it's appealing um, because these are rich countries and they're big countries and they're important countries with weight and status and stature on the world stage. And so I think other parts of the world, you know, parts of Africa, parts of Latin America, parts of Southeast Asia, parts of, you know, Central Asia, the island, wherever, um, you know, will look at that and say, well, these are important allies on the world stage. You know, it may be true that the US and Europe are the sort of dominant economies on the world you know stage and they have important economic levers and they have important power uh, around the world but the point is that what china and russia offer is not insubstantial and that's attractive in its own way as well and so the idea that you have to depend on the kind of western order um isn't necessarily the case and i think that's the kind of the marketing pitch that you know uh, as you put it uh, which I think they're putting out, and that's the stool, which I think is appealing to uh, some other parts the well. I mean, look, if you look at Africa or the Sahelian region at the moment, where there's a real struggle between kind of Russia and uh, the European countries um, in particular, France in particular, we can see that in a lot of those places, they're actively choosing kind of Russia. And it's not just because of Wagner government, you know, Wagner private military company coming in. It's actually because Russia has offered a much more complicated and sophisticated offer, which extends to education, which extends to sort of economic links, which extends in other directions as well um, to these countries. And it comes with a lot less judgment in some ways than the West. And that is, I think, the element which is quite appealing to other parts of the world where, you know, these are powers which say, look, you want to borrow three billion to build a project which the World Bank thinks is a giant white elephant and they're not interested in funding sure, we'll offer you that money and, you know, you'll pay us back and that's it and we'll send our companies to do it and that's the relationship, but you will pay us back, you know. Um, but that's what the government there wants, whereas, you know, if the government took that project to the IMF, the World Bank, they might turn around and say, well, you know, we've done a feasibility study and we've concluded it's not best for your country. In fact, we think, you know, you need to improve these issues of governance and we'd rather fund this other thing. You know, they, that, that's the kind of view that they will see coming and they won't see that Uh, That kind of judgment or that criticism coming from China and Russia, where it's a much more, you know, overt and naked commercial transaction. You want to borrow money? Fine. We will lend you the money, build this project. Um, If it works or not, well, that's your problem, but you will pay us back, you know, and that's, that's what the government of that country wants, whether it's right for that country or not, you know.
0: All right, R- Raph, um, I mean, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, Thank you very let's, much. Said, let's for do the it invitation. again sometimes. Well, let's talk, uh, you know, next summit. Actually, we should say <laughs> that, you know, um, one of the other things that come out of this was that um, apparently an offer has been extended for Putin to, to travel to China this year, which I think is extra interesting, obviously, given that he has this new international criminal court warrant after him. Um, but it seems that, um, you know, we saw... Um, Kremlin aides also say that Putin has approved that he has space in his calendar to travel to China to meet with Xi uh, within 2023. So hopefully we'll have you on before then. But if not, we're looking forward to to breaking that one down with you, Raf. Um, And so thanks again, Rafael Pantucci, for joining me. And thank you all for listening. Um, If you haven't already, please please subscribe to the China and Eurasia newsletter, uh, which comes out every other Wednesday. Um, And we'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, I'm Reid Standish.